Welcome to the 39th Patreon Podcast. I'm John Miro, host and producer of the show, and it has been my pleasure to share creators' stories with you for this last year. Next week, we'll mark the 40th and, alas, the final Patreon Podcast, in its current form, focusing on long-form interviews sharing creators' stories. But Patreon is just getting started bringing you informing and entertaining glimpses into our community and the lives of our creators, so stay tuned for much more. Since May 2015, I've had a blast sharing these stories with you. Interviewing people is an art. It's one I've been practicing since 2009. It's, it's very rewarding to me, and I'm very grateful and proud of the opportunity to work with Patreon to bring you insights into your favorite Patreon creators, and to introduce some of you to new creators you've come to love. Patreon may be taking a break from long-form podcasting, but if you like my interview style, you can keep hearing more of what I'm doing by becoming, for a change, my patron. And to help me make more, visit patreon.com slash originstory. O-R-I-G-I-N-S-T-O-R-I. It's where I'll continue to interview Patreon creators, as well as cast the net wider and explore creators, makers, and innovators beyond the borders of Patreon. Every life, every career, every work of art has an origin story. And now you can become my patron to help me make more. You can sign up now and new episodes will begin the week after next. No interruptions in the interview cycle. I want to thank Jack, Tyler, and Taryn at Patreon for their support throughout the year we built the show and the year that it ran. Patreon is something special, and I've loved to help share the word about this community through this podcast. And thank you, one and all, for tuning in to hear these creator stories. Okay, let's get down to business. Don't forget to tune in next week for the final Patreon podcast. And right now, it's time to dig into the lives and passions of two more creators. That's all from your Canadian correspondent to Patreon from the shores of Lake Ontario in Ontario, Canada. Thank you very much for listening to the Patreon podcast. Paul Cooley is a horror author with tentacles in science fiction and fantasy based in Houston, Texas. An award-winning podcast author, Paul is a hybrid fiction writer, both self-published and traditionally published for his Amazon Kindle best-selling series, The Black from Severed Press. Paul Cooley joins us now to share his story on the Patreon podcast. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have different authors from all over the world and a horror writer from Texas. Working with a publisher in Tasmania, that's a good start on talking about global art and how Patreon can connect people. First, I guess we'll go with the traditional questions before we talk about process, before we talk about current work and your presence on Patreon. When did you decide to start becoming a regularly published author? Everyone's got a story, but when did you decide this was something that was going to become your career? Well, I tried to, I got out of writing a long time ago. I, I, I've been writing since I was, I was 12 and I took a very, very long hiatus after an altercation with an agent back in, I don't know, 94. No, no, earlier than that. 90, 93, 94, somewhere in there. And I stopped writing for about eight to 10 years. And I really didn't get right back into it until my wife told me what Scott Sigler was doing. And that, uh, he had put his stuff out there for free on podcast and then suddenly was getting a publishing deal. And she was like, how, what, what is it going to take to get you started again writing? So basically the writing kind of became a way to get a podcast going. And so I started a podcast and started writing and was like, well, this is a nice little hobby. And then suddenly I had fans and it was getting serious all of a sudden. I went, you know, 
this is what I've always wanted to do as a career. How do I get to that point? And so all I did was I kept creating, kept doing, uh, honing my podcast skills. I uh, kept writing and writing and writing. And finally, it was uh, with Sever Press, uh, the blackout with the, bla- with the black, breakout with the black. It was uh, the first book I'd ever written that was specifically for a certain niche. And it worked gangbusters. And the book is now, well, the series is, I'm working on book four of the series right now. And uh, there's going to be more to come along in that vein. And and now I can I can actually set my sights on doing this full-time, uh, full-time media creator, whether it's putting up YouTube videos, writing a course, podcasting a course, and doing some other things. Basically, this is what I want to do for my job from now on. Now, this is something that I hear from many creators when I have them on the podcast. Uh, Patreon is a stream that leads to a river of a career for people. Um, as in the old days, one would get a publishing advance and hope to heck the book sold when it hit the shelves a year right. or two later. Now we have uh, podcasts with uh, an advertising network selling products that they believe in or or they feel strongly represent the products or they have people who are the direct fan connection with Patreon, which we'll get to. But the podcasts came first before even Kindle successfully monetized ebooks. Podcasts were becoming a wave that independent writers could use to reach people that they never have the influence to otherwise. You talked briefly about Scott Sigler, one of the first generation of podcast authors that has come and exploded. And he's now a, a New York Times extended list bestselling author. You yourself have worked with him on an upcoming release. Uh, what's the, uh, the world of podcasting? Is it still a viable way for a creator to, to, to hone their craft as well as to hone their audience? I think it is mainly because, uh, I guess in my, in my, and I think we, we both share this and we're not the only ones. The audio component of actually reading your work aloud is a great sanity test for the work itself. It helps actually work out some of the kinks in the verbiage, the narrative, and it actually helps you spot some continuity errors you would not have found otherwise, which, uh, no author has ever had that happen. So I, I think it's still viable. Podcasts are actually becoming more popular. They, there was a swing where they stopped being as popular, but they're coming back. Now, what, what's interesting to me is the fiction podcasts where people podcast an entire novel. The, the number of people participating in that has dropped off exponentially from, from the heyday mm. back when it first was really going. Well, it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. It is a ton of work. It, it, uh, Outbreak is probably when I get the audiobook done, it's probably gonna be 50 to 60 hours of raw recording. And when it's all finished, will be probably 12 hours of finished audio. And you know how this works. So while I was working a full-time day job, recording that was interfering with writing, was interfering with this, was interfering with this. Now I can do it without I can schedule it whenever I want. I can actually make, you know, eight to ten hour slots to to make that happen and still have time to write. And I think a lot of the podcast fiction authors realized that the time was just killing them, was killing their writing. And so they jumped out of it. But I personally think with new avenues like Twitch and YouTube and et cetera, where uh, more and more people seem to be getting their content from, that we kind of opened up a new avenue to reach folks with our fiction. And so it's I think it's still important to put it out there. But you have to treat it like a professional more than you even used to. Because back in the day when I started, fans were pretty forgiving. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some audience members who, if they heard a, a clip or a break or a bad hiss on the tape, would just stop listening to your podcast altogether. Now, I think for fiction, it's more uh, important than ever that you be as clean as you possibly can, because some of these people have, like like Sigler or Mer Lafferty, have set the bar extremely high. So now we have, you know, have to do our best to to live up to that and not uh, not look like amateurs in the face of greatness. <laughs> In a world that um, just a few years ago, before, say, the serial podcast exploded for NPR, uh, granted, that's a nonfiction podcast, but I think that is part of what happened. Um, Audible became more popular. Other forms of media became easily accessible for long-form fiction. But yet, a free podcast stands the test of time, all the way back to the beginning of radio. People love listening to people tell a story, and it's an intimate connection in your ears, as you've learned from your fans. What do you think the connection means to your fans to hear your voice as the author of the work. That's very interesting. When I, there, there are two works I have that I had um, professional narrators perform. And I wasn't really sure the, what the reception would be from, from my fan base. And it was really interesting because I was talking about having the black narrated by somebody else. That's what I was trying to get to. And there was actually a revolt. <laughs> Of several folks who sent me emails, sent me messages saying, don't, don't do this. You're, you, you know how to narrate this, this. You can do it better than anybody else because we know exactly how it sounds in your head, even if your female voices sound like crap. So there's a, there's a certain level of monogamy that occurs with, uh, with your fan base. They want to hear your voice. They want to hear how you say the things. They want to hear, how you intonate and the other thing is i i i try my best now to be very good at editing i put music down where it's necessary i put in sound effects for voices when when it when it makes sense i do all those things and that's what my fans expect and therefore it's really really difficult to put that on somebody else and now that i'm doing this full time and don't have a day job Picking up the slack. I don't have any money to actually hire somebody else. So it's, it's more on the lines of I've got to do it myself. And that's actually kind of turned it into a good thing, I guess. And, and you know, one of the things I want to work on while I, I'm doing this full time is basically improving my voice, my narration style and, and get things a little bit better. But I still think it's very important, even though when Stephen King did it, he narrated uh, several of the Dark Tower books back in the nineties. Even though he wasn't a trained voice, it was extremely valuable to hear what those characters sounded like in his head mm-hmm. and how they would and how they spoke. And regardless of his uh, amateurish voice tactics on that and needful things, I still think those were very important books, and it's very difficult for me to listen to anybody else narrate them now. So I think I think that that really allows you to make a connection. Plus, every week. They get to hear me make a joke. They get to hear me uh, say something about what's coming up next week, new events that have happened. Uh, I'm going to get better about, you know, relating some more crazy things that are going on in the in the world and in the podcast now because I have time to do that. And I'll be able to put out more essays. And strangely enough, more, more and more of my listeners are telling me they miss my essays. So I'm going to get back into trying to do that at least once a week, if not twice a week. How has uh, being a patron creator adapted or changed the way you interact with your fans have have people appreciated the opportunity to follow you on patreon and has it changed or colored or brought new fans to the table yet 
That's a very interesting question. I only got on Patreon relatively recently. And for the past, I guess, year and a half, two years, several people have bugged me, harassed me, sent me hate mail and everything else to try and get me on Patreon because their response was, I bought everything you've written. Uh, I still want a way to support you. And it seems like the PayPal donate is kind of a simplistic way to do that. So the people that have jumped on board so far on Patreon to support me at various levels have all basically sent me posts submissive saying, you know, we want to just keep things going. We know you're going full time. You need every dollar you can get your paws on. And they want to basically support that. They want to make sure that this is successful because what they want is they want four or five books a year. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they want. And they also, of course, want a chance to appear in a story and, and get killed. And some of them who have already been killed and want to come back somehow resurrected in another series. Yeah, that might not happen. Anyway, bottom line is there's uh, th- there's definitely been interest in in supporting me on Patreon. And I think as I add more reward levels, we're going to see some of the more insane members of my fandom uh, pledge at some ridiculous levels, which will be fun, too. So there's there's a lot of different things going on there. I think it's been a really, really good boost, and it kind of dovetails with the the YouTube stuff I've been doing recently. And I think it's going to be a very, very good way to, you know, basically get a few shekels for the the kinds of things we have to do, like when equipment breaks, we have to buy new equipment or um, basically when I run out of money because I'm waiting on my la- my next royalty check to be able to afford dog food. So, you know, things like that. And if you want to keep Paul eating dog food, you can do that at patreon.com slash Cooley. But before we get on to actually that component of it, let me ask I keep coming up with good things because you're a great interview subject. Before we get again to Patreon, let's talk about those new avenues of social media. Podcasts are social media, and they existed before Twitter and Facebook was not yet the behemoth it was. What was it about podcasting that is replicable in other media that Patreon creators can take advantage of, do you think? The free model is still one of those deals where you will get certain people to fight and say it's stupid and you get other people to say everything should be free right. and we should all be patrons of the free work. YouTube and Twitch provide an interesting outlet where it's no longer just your voice, where you can actually add video, you can add skits, you can punctuate your work with some visual images and still put it out there for free. YouTube gives you the added bonus of being able to monetize that by, you know, basically enrolling your work in their monetization framework. Mm -hmm. And so people have to sit through a commercial, maybe five seconds before they hit skip this ad, as they always do, or get locked into a 15 second guys code commercial, whatever. But you're giving them, you know, 20, 15 to 20 minutes of free content. And just like with the, the YouTubers that have gained notoriety, like Markiplier and, and, um, uh, PewDiePie, who I think everybody and their dog has heard of. People are willing to sit through that to get the content that they want. And that means that we make money off of the advertising. They get the free content. They can binge listen all they freaking want to their heart's desire. And it provides you another outlet that that uh, is visual as well as the vocal. And I think that's extremely important if you can get that going. That's just another avenue to get more fans who are in their 20s you know, late teens, early 20s that uh, are using YouTube primarily as, as their main content source. And not that scottsigler.com needs another plug, but the gentleman has just started using Snapchat 
of all things. The gentleman is far too old to be on Snapchat, but I think his <laughs> fans are going to appreciate it um, as a way to offer the first pages or the first lines of different chapters to intrigue his audience. So let's turn that around and ask you, Paul, what's the importance of that first chapter, that first impression you make on somebody who's found your content for the first time? Man, it's it's about as as important as it can get. You have to. I I like to write slow burns, as we were discussing earlier. Uh, Closet treats is a classic slow burn. The black is pretty much a slow burn for the first uh, twenty or thirty thousand words. But it's all. But in both of those books, it's about building up dread. Mm-hmm. It's about building up the suspense of what's going to happen next. And it doesn't matter if you're writing straight horror, or if you're writing a actually writing a suspense book like Sidney Sheldon does or somebody like that. The important part is to give them a glimpse into what they're going to walk into for the rest of the book. And you have to do that by kind of adding those tension points. And you have to make the character that appears in that first, those first few glimpses interesting. Make it so that somebody wants to keep listening. And it's the same way if, if you're writing a book anyway. You put that out there, you've got basically, especially with, with Kindle, you know, they've got one to five pages or whatever it is in the sample that they can read. It's extremely important that that sample be act exactly like it would be in a bookstore. Most people will go to a book and in a bookstore, open it up and read the first few pages. Within those first few pages, I don't remember what the percentages were because I haven't paid attention to this in a long time, but it was, it was some astronomical percentage of people who read the first few pages and find something they like will actually buy the book. Otherwise, they will just walk away from it. So it's extremely important for that first podcast episode, for that first for that first YouTube video, for that first audiobook piece, for that first couple of pages to really shine, really sing and show what the story is going to be all about. And it's extremely difficult to do at times. But it is one of the things that you have to get good at in your trade. An excellent example and summary. Thank you. Uh, speaking of which, what, when you're planning your trade, there's a lot of work that goes into it. As you alluded to before, um, an independent creator does not have a audio studio. He does not have an in-house editor. These are functions that Patreon can help you support and subsidize to get through. Uh, what are some of the steps you go through before you hand off to that illustrator, editor, or um, build the audio yourself? Before you write the words, even, what are a couple of the things that are part of your routine that help you be a better writer? Uh, they can be away from the keyboard, even. It's sort it's sort of morphing. I used to write very character-driven stories, and um, hopefully I'll get back to that. Unfortunately, my, bes- my best-selling books seem to be the plot-driven ones. <laughs> and then that, that's okay, because that's what they're supposed to be. I spend a lot of time... Lately, with with these books that are supposed to be plot-driven, thinking about the kinds of beats, the kinds of scenes that need to be in them to actually drive the plot, the major pieces that need to happen. And that way, I know how to drive the story to those points. As with everything in in this business and and with the way I, I, I approach the fiction, that will change. No battle plan survives the in- first engagement with the enemy. Or and the reader. Basically, or the reader. And then that's basically been my watchword over the years is I've found myself there were many times where I've started in the middle of a book rather than writing in the first page. <laughs> I've uh, been, spent some time where I've actually been working on the end and didn't know it. And that's how I started the book. 
I start writing a short story and it ends up being a novel. That happens frequently too. But the process is mostly the same, which is figuring out the characters I need to make the story work and then the horrible things I need to do to them to make the story interesting. And I write down a lot of notes. I write down a lot of uh, cards and, and Scrivener. I spend a lot of time messing around and prototyping some scenes. It just kind of depends. And sometimes I just jump right in without, ever, without having any idea where the things are going because it's just a line of dialogue or whatever else showed up in my brain. But the process once I'm into the book is uh, a little bit different. And it's based on how each chapter ends or, you know, the three or four chapters I know I have ahead. So it just kind of depends on, on what book it is I'm writing, what the characters are that I'm writing. But I'm always thinking of audio. I'm always thinking of audio when I'm writing. And I don't know why. I think that's just basically I've trained myself to do that now. And uh, it Well, means the that, first stories were told around a campfire before the printed press right, was even invested. Right. So. Right. So instead of trying to, you know, I, I don't have to worry about trying to get flowery language out during the edit step because my brain is already thinking I can't have the flowery language in audio because I'm either going to put somebody to sleep or make them roll their eyes because and, you know, because I'm going to have to read this stuff. So uh, I might be rolling my eyes while I read it. <laughs> so th there's a lot of different things that go into, you know, pushing the book forward and, and getting the book done and getting the story down. And I'm always thinking about how is this going to look in print? How is it going to work in audio? How is it going to work when it gets in the readers or listeners' hands? And that's that's just become part of the process. And I really don't think about it too much anymore. It's pretty much organic. I mean, I've been doing this for seven or eight years now, going from from uh, the written word to audio to you know being published. So it, it's it I've got it down, but there's still a lot of work that has to happen before it gets to an editor or an illustrator to design covers or whatnot. And you haven't quite gotten stale yet. I think it's harder once you've been doing a career for 20 or 30 years to adapt to a new technology. So it's good that um, perhaps you've come along at this time where the independent processes require flexibility. I called you a hybrid author in the beginning of this interview because you still do publish your own work and you still work in tandem with a big old-fashioned publisher. Uh, granted, this one is in Tasmania, so good on you for the truly international <laughs> flavor. Is there a way you change or is there a way you approach a project that differs based on where you're going to be sending it to do it independently or through a traditional publisher? There is. There is. Most most of my independently published work works are related somehow. They all take place. Well, basically, there's three universes, but they're all they all collide. And I've been working those, I've been basically making progress toward each of those stories, adding more to the mythos that, that I've kind of created in those three different uh, series with working for other producing work for other publishers. I have to completely divorce myself from those particular universes and create something wholly different intellectual property. Yes. Intellectual property. I don't want anybody to have any, get their paws on uh demons of Garaga, the fiends or, or uh, Tony downs. Cause they could cause problems later on for me. So when I approach those works, I have to completely divorce myself from, from those universes. That I love to play in. And come up with new ones where I can work and, and maybe create a, yet another mythos that uh, is okay and you know from the IP standpoint. So the style of story that I'm writing for those are going to more closely match what that publisher's niche is, if they have one. 
Sever Press is is got um, by the sounds of the publishing company, they they publish some pretty dark stuff as far as uh, the kinds of stakes that are there, the kinds of creatures or people that are in them. They you know very apocalyptic in nature, and uh, you know even the sci-fi, even some of the sci-fi books of, that they publish have got that feel to it. And so I basically jump into that feel. It's it's a completely different a completely different way of writing than what I normally write. And I'm okay with that because I'm professional and you have to do what you need to do to eat. And it's um it's a little frustrating at times because there are things I I do want to do but I know they're not appropriate for that book. So what I'm writing now is I'm writing, you know, action horror uh sci, you know, sci-fi techno thriller suspense books and that's fine. That's what they are. No I, room if I for want, that long character pause chapter. Yeah. No, 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 very little room for that. And of course, the more, more characters you put in there and, and, uh, the black series has got a ton of them now that some of them actually survived. It's scary, but, uh, you know, the old joke was nobody survives a Cooley novel, uh, not without serious problems happening to them. That, that, that still remains the same in the black series, but it's just, uh, I don't kill nearly as many of the characters in there. So those books would be the severed, but reattached press. Yes, there you go. <laughs> Unlike my other tales, which usually don't end well for anybody. So there's, and we're still going to have that. I mean, any, any book that I write is always going to have that, is always going to have that feel of, of uh, my, my website motto, my podcast motto, which is we don't believe in happy endings. There's going to be no, uh, Prince Charming sweeping off the princess kind of deal or everybody's all mended and put back together again at the end. There's going to be serious loss and conflict and people are going to walk away scarred. They may walk away, but they're going to walk away scarred. And that's probably <laughs> going to happen with whatever I write. Even if I wrote, even if I wrote romance, that's going to happen. So that's just the way it is. We'll get to tools you use to create your work, but what are a couple of non-traditional tools that are important? Not the keyboard, not the software. Uh, a process or a tool or walking the dog or, or, you know, going climbing at the gym. Something you need to do to get right, to write. I'm weird. I can write in a bar. I can write uh, in a crowded restaurant. In fact, what's really strange is I'm often more productive when I'm out in public. I don't know why that is, but it's like the the world goes away, but I still have the presence of human beings around me, and I can shut out everything else. I, I don't know how that works, why that works. It just does. So You're sucking their of, life energies, Paul. Yeah, I'm sucking their life energies. That's what it is. Usually, if if I'm at home, it's it's going to be music. I have to have music. I have to have some noise. I have to have something going on. And it, the more atmospheric, the better. Depending on what I'm writing, that and, and cups of co- endless cups of coffee are pretty much the, uh, the boon to my process. And and I write best in the mornings, so I basically try and wake up early and get that done before you know, lunchtime and do some chores at lunchtime. And in the afternoon, I'm either going to be writing, editing, doing audio or, or whatever else I need to get done. And what are uh, some of the uh, the other media you consume to recharge your brain? Is it video games? Is it movies? Is it books? I play video games. I listen to audio books. I uh, watch other YouTubers to take note of what they're doing. I kind of study some vocalization stuff and find somebody who's talking in an accent that I want to try and emulate. I, man, there's just so many things to 
to do to, to basically push all this other stuff out of the way and get your brain back in order. And sometimes all it takes is walking the dog, listening to an audio book and getting the hell out for a while. I used to smoke cigarettes endlessly. And, uh, th- that's usually where I solve my problems. So now I'm, I'm, I'm coming up with a, a new pattern to try and, you know, work for 45 minutes, 50 minutes straight, get up, act like I'm on a smoke break and do the things I would kind of do on a smoke break, except smoke. And that will allow my brain to just basically jump right back into where I was. So there's, there, there's little bits of process that I'm still honing because now I've, I've just been full time. Today is, is basically my first day as a full-time writer, <laughs> full full-time creator. So I'm I'm uh um you you've caught me while I'm still trying to perfect things. <laughs> well it's good to know that you haven't perfected things yet. That means the writing might get good. Better. Might get better. <laughs> Congratulations on that. And let's switch uh-huh. it around to a couple of the two, if not traditional, but more writing related tools. You mentioned Scrivener earlier. You can go with that or something else. What are the tools you like to use to get the words out? I use Scrivener. I use a, a program called Ulysses, which is uh, very cut down. It, it's like Scrivener Ultralight. It, it's just basically designed to put stuff together and it works on iOS. So I, I write on my iPad frequently. You're looking forward uh, to Scrivener coming out this week for the iOS? I'm looking forward to test driving it and see what it does for me. If it works as well as I hope it does, then I can probably ditch Ulysses permanently. But Ulysses has been a great tool because it, it just doesn't get in your way. Mm. And then I end up copying the work from there and it syncs with iCloud. So it doesn't matter where I am. It just is automatically there. So I, I will, I've been writing Ulysses in Ulysses and then when a chapter's done or I feel like I'm ready to, I'll, I'll go and put them in Scrivener so I can drag around the cards, put them in the right order and everything else as it goes on. Cause Scrivener is basically my last, that's where I'm going to edit from. That's where I'm going distrib- to distribute from. That's where I'm going to do all the, all the crazy work of getting things ready for for press. So from the from the actual writing point of view, those are my two those are my those are the two most important tools I have. Excellent. As as far as audio goes, um, I've been I, I do some things in GarageBand, but for all my audio books now, professional audio stuff, I, I use Logic Pro, and um, for YouTube, I'm using Motion and Final Cut. As well as logic, obviously. Now that we've gotten that down, we know where you're going. We know who you're writing for. We know how you're getting most of it done. Let's ask you about another question about why. What attributes do you respect or try to emulate in some of your peers or some of your influences? Oh, boy, that's that's tough. That's a tough one. For the books that I'm writing for other publishers, I'm doing my best to emulate the other works that they have. And that's not to say that I'm necessarily changing my style or redoing what I do and throwing away my own unique voice. It's just a matter of, okay, well, this is how this story structure works for these books. There's with the coolie spin. With the coolie spin. So basically taking that formula and and uh, if I can find the formula or a pattern and then mixing it up and doing what I do, which is horrible things to characters, absolutely horrible things to characters and horrible things to readers. They, they, they love it for some reason. So there's that that I got to worry about with, with uh, books for Sever Press, for instance, or whatever other press I go to. And then for my personal stuff, the worry is making sure that it fits in the canon and advances the, the universes that I'm working in. So there's, there's two different pieces there that go along with, with figuring out what it is I'm trying to do and, and what it is I'm trying to write. 
So it, I have to switch back and forth between the two things. But I'm getting better at doing that. And it means that if I go back to a shadowpublications.com property, I feel refreshed. I feel renewed because I haven't been stumbling in there in a while. And then also if I stumble in there for a while and then jump back to something like the Black Series, my brain just goes, oh, okay, now it's time to switch into this. And then we just run with it. And it, it makes a nice break from the two things. And I'm expanding into other genres. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how all that works. I don't think I'm going to get bored anytime soon with writing. Oh, that's good to know. Or breathing, hopefully. We'll keep you around, mm. write a few more books. Now, what um, other Patreon creators are you supporting with your words, your time, uh, monthly, financially, or with a shout out here that you'd like to talk about? Monthly right now, I'm supporting some douchebag named John Rowe. I'm also supporting somebody named Scott Roche, who used to be with the listeners of Robot Society. As far as shout outs go, I think folks need to be uh, really taking a look at Jake Bible. They really need to be taking a look at Terry Mixon. They need to be looking at Justin McCumber. They need to be looking at these other authors who are, I mean, Terry's indie. Full in, full on indie, and he's making a very, very good career for himself just writing, you know, science, science fiction space operas. That's what he does. And he knows how to do it very well. And, and I love the two series he's got going on right now. Jake is the poster child for Severed Press and basically set the bar, I think, in a lot of ways for many of their stories. And his work is always fun. It's uh, it's always an experience, and he's just as twisted as I am. So it's fun to to watch him juggle juggle those daggers in, in his work. And of course, Matt Wallace. I think Matt Wallace is doing fantastic work, bringing back the novella. And uh, you know, he's published through Tor. If you if you don't know who that is, go search and find him. Check it out. Go look at Slingers. It's an awesome series. The Sindashore stuff is is fantastic. He's doing weird and wonderful things with with language, character, and stories. I mean that those people, those writers excite me for what they're doing and what they're trying to break. And it's a matter of of they have a unique outlook on the genres they write in. They have a unique outlook on how to write, a unique outlook on write what writing means beyond just a, a paycheck. And it's very, very wonderful to see how they're melding those things together. And those are all things I learned from, too. Awesome. Well said. Uh, speaking of well said, let me ask, you have um, some works that are created for Severed. You have some works that are from your heart, and you treat them both excellently. But there's this other thing in the middle, and maybe we could talk about Patreon rewards and how to make people who support you feel the love back. That might involve doing horrible things instead of to readers or people, but to small felt puppets. <laughs> <laughs> now, how does small felt puppets reinforce Patreon rewards for your supporters? Once upon a time, I wrote a story called Stuffing, which is a dystopian take on Sesame Street. It, it was a, supposed to be a one-off. It was a joke. It was uh, a story written from the, the vantage point viewpoint of Oscar the Grouch, Private Eye, in a world where PBS had been canceled by the neocons. All the puppets had to move back to Sesame Street. All the Muppet Show properties were canceled. So everybody came home to Sesame Street. Drug war breaks out between Cookie Monster and Snuffleupagus. <laughs> Fozzie's, Fozzie's running a brothel. Um, uh, Grover's a, slum war, a slumlord pimp. I mean, <laughs> all this just absolute insane stuff. And basically, I like to put it as a combination between New Jack City and 40s War. 
And uh, it, it uh, for some reason, it spoke to people. I don't know why, but it did. And so they demanded I write more of them. So and I you did. gave all the money to proceeds to the Sesame Street Foundation, as I recall, Children's Television gave- Workshop. I gave two bucks from from every audiobook sale and every trade paperback sale over to the the, uh, um, the Sesame Workshop, and that also helped drive stuff. Well, it I after some long rumination, I decided that because the series has got some legal dangers, I could win. I could win any lawsuit they throw at me because it's all parody anyway. Mm. But I couldn't afford to fight it, so I thought, <laughs> all right, since the folks want this. I'll just go ahead and say, here's the deal. All the street stuff is now free. I'm not going to sell it anymore. All of it's free. I will be making it all free, the audiobook, everything very, very soon. And what I will do is I will make stretch goals on Patreon that if I make so much money per month, then I will write new street stories. So this is basically telling everybody out there who wants a new street story. You're a felt pusher, Cooley. I'm a felt pusher. Give me a buck a month and uh, we'll we'll make it happen. And the reason being for that is now that I'm living paycheck to paycheck, royalty check to royalty check, I can't really afford to write to spend the time to write the street stories. I just can't. Unless people You'll- give you a reason. Unless people give me a reason. And don't get me wrong, I love writing those stories. I gave them as Christmas gifts to my to 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 my listeners for a long, long time. Now I'm gonna try this model and see how it works. I'm gonna put the entirety of the street up on YouTube with uh some some crazy things going on. But I wanted, <laughs> but I wanted to create something special just for the patrons to allow them to feel like they've contributed to, you know, creating the work that they love. And in fact, the Garagas Children's series, I've got four or five stories that have never seen the light of day. So only one of them people have heard before, and that was only if they attended readings at Balticon. So I'll be making those available, too, at certain reward levels, and we'll get those out to the folks that love it. And I think it's it's going to be a good way to, to get things done and, and reward them for, you know, helping helping me uh, make make the bills every month. And this is an important point to recognize. I'm a creator. I'm a Patreon creator as well. When we talk about connecting with fans, it's not mercenary. We need to feed ourselves. Although I really wish you could get more Patreon creators so that the dogs could eat the dog food and you could get some real food. But in, <laughs> above and beyond the money, I know from previous discussions with you that there is a real compact with the fans and yes. you feel a real sense of providing good work. How do you imagine that? this work would go over if it disappeared completely. I think there'd be an outrage. So I'm glad you got a place like Patreon to to give it a home and still, you know, put more than dog sh- dog food on the shelves. Uh, I wish you the best of luck getting that second series that going up and running just for those fans who are very hungry for it. And I might just have to visit your site myself. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, there's one last question I'd like to ask everybody. I want to know what you would tell to someone like yourself or myself, maybe a few years on our journey back behind us, who's coming up with a backlist with work, who's regularly producing. So that's, that's all that's happening. What's the next piece of advice you give that person who's doing their due diligence, meeting their deadlines and feeding their fans regularly? What would you tell them they need to do to get on Patreon to make it a success? It's basically spend the time looking at what other writers are doing out there, what's working. And, um, 
Look at the kind of rewards that they offer. Look at the kind of goals that they have. And also look at what you need, which you absolutely positively need. That needs to be, that needs to play a large part in it. You need to balance the, you need to balance the money that you need to get versus what you can offer and do not offer more than you can actually produce because that's just a bad way of doing any kind of business. Kickstarter, can, Patreon, anything. Yeah. I come from the software culture and, and there's, there's a couple of different things we say, which is always, you know, under promise, over deliver. And the other one is fail often, fail fast. <laughs> so that latter means that if you're trying something or you think something will work, but you realize very quickly it won't, don't let it linger. Don't let it sit there and fester. Get rid of it as quickly as possible. Apologize and move on. People are pretty understanding. I mean, life happens. But the best thing you can do is get enough of the work done ahead of time so you don't feel like you're always trying to run and catch up. Mm. And if you do that, you're going to have a lot less stress in your life. And uh, both you, your family, and your 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 patrons are going to be a lot happier in the long run. Guys, you don't want Cooley walking into a room and his pets hiding in the corner quivering. you got to help him out. If you're a <laughs> fan, if you would like to become a fan and learn more about his horror action Muppet fan service. You pick a name. You can find out about it at patreon.com slash Paul E. Cooley, where he will be more than happy to take your dollar of support and put your name in the graveyard of people to be killed in his future fiction. Paul, thanks for joining us on the Patreon podcast. Well, thanks for having me, John. It was fun to talk. Paulie Leonard is a philosopher. He's a university degree installed philosopher in everything. He's also currently the host of Philosophy Tube, where he explores the practices, history, and current state of philosophy and engages with his fans. Ollie, I'd like to welcome you to the Patreon podcast to talk about what you're doing and how Patreon helps you do it. Thank you. Well, listen, the first thing that everybody gets asked when they're talking about creating something is, well, when did you start? How did you decide you wanted to make that statue or build that wall? How does one decide to become a philosopher? Well, I guess I should should start, and this is a real philosopher's answer, by uh, by saying I'm not really a philosopher. So I, I don't hold an academic teaching position. I don't teach at a university. Uh, I'm a man with a master's degree in philosophy who decided to put his degree on YouTube for free so anyone could learn it. And I was in my second year of my master's, which was four years long, and I was doing a lot of stand-up comedy at the time. And a girlfriend at the time told me, hey, you should create a YouTube channel for your stand-up. And I didn't really think I had enough material to really make, make that work. And I didn't think I was good enough. But the idea of having a YouTube channel stuck with me. And it was when the, it was just after the British government tripled the cost of attending university. They tripled university tuition fees. And I had friends who couldn't afford to go to university. And philosophy is already quite a difficult subject to get into. And, and it hit me, wow, there are a lot of people who might want to study what I'm studying and who can't. So I decided I would give away my degree for free on YouTube. So anybody in the world could learn philosophy at, at the level I was learning it, no matter how much money they had. And that was that was where it came from, really. And I had my research period of a few months looking at channels that I wanted to be like and figuring out what the format would be. And then went from there. And at the end of day one, I had 100 subscribers and realized, wow, this is something that people, there's a need for this. There's a, a gap in the not market, I suppose. That's not a nice way of putting it. But there was a gap in the landscape that I filled. And it's just gone from strength to strength since then, really. When we're little, everybody who loves us tell us to find something that we're good at so that we can keep a roof over our head. Very few of those mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers said, get get your YouTube niche clear. <laughs> 
But you've done that. You've created something that is at once familiar and comforting because it is the, 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 the single camera, for the most part, view of a person who's discussing what he loves. Uh, but you do so with great humor and a great facility to create a one-sided conversation that feels inclusive. Uh, and you, you talk. <laughs> no, it's true. It's, it, there are so many people on Patreon who really believe in what they're doing. Um, there are so many people that find an original niche, but what you've done is you've found two. You found that comfortable YouTube vlogger niche, but you filled it with something that you're passionate about and also really know how to communicate uh, without sounding standoffish, which was one of the goals of your channel, given that it is philosophy. How did it feel when you were like fine-tuning the flavor and getting those initial responses from people about making philosophy fun, so to speak? How, how did you dial in that flavor when you started sharing with people? Well, it's an ongoing process, really. Um, the first two episodes I made, and in fact, most of what I've, most of what I've made over the last three years has been not as good as I'd want it to be. I suppose every creative person says, Oh, you know, everything sure. I made five months ago was awful, but, <laughs> and you probably get that an awful lot on the podcast, but I, I just sort of got better at writing scripts, really. Um, some of my very early scripts are not good and my early cameras and microphones were not good, but it's just, practice really i just i just got better at explaining things and and better at figuring out how long a script needed to be and how many turns it could take before it would overload people's minds because on youtube one of the great things is you can see how long people are watching for on a video and then they click away so in a philosophy lecture that might span an hour or two hours you can have you can be like inception you can build in you know five or ten layers or turns and, and then you could <laughs> go back and forth and play intellectual tennis with it on youtube it's it's i've found for me it's usually about two or three turns i can make in a video before it just starts getting too dense and i'll say okay this has to be a two-parter uh, or a four-parter in, in the case of one of my series so it, it's just practice really just just getting better at communicating the ideas clearly and coming up with um useful analogies and, and ways of keeping it visually interesting as well that was something i didn't didn't really realize to start with it's really only the last few months that i've realized okay a one person and a camera for for 10 minutes that's quite tough so if i've got other images to look at or things that come over and and overlay on top of the screen for instance if i'm talking about a historical event if i can show historical photos of it that will so you're not just looking at my ugly face for 10 minutes um then that'll make it more interesting so it just practice i guess and and looking at other youtubers that i like and seeing how they do it very similar to i think stand up you found a format that really feels i think something you're going into with comfort and something you really enjoy as much as communicating the language because the styling is changing but before we talk about the styling and how your career is coming along as a university student when you started you you have created something relatively new uh and I suppose there's a lot of people that when they see the word philosophy, aren't really sure what they're jumping into. So mm. time for that really easy, simple two minute answer. Just roll off, you know, just rattle it off really quickly. What's philosophy? Oh, God, people have devoted entire careers to answering uh, this question. Now, and I once, give it a minute, minute and a half. Uh, Come on. I once entered an essay competition trying to define philosophy and I did not win that competition. <laughs> but um, I'll, I'll do my best for you. And it, it may be wrong. But here's the thing. There are some questions like how hot is the sun or how big is an elephant that you can answer by going and looking. You take a measurement or you do an experiment, you do some science. And there are other questions that are really important, but you can't answer that way. Questions like what does it mean for a statement to be true or what should I do? Or who has moral responsibility for this? Or what is the best way to design a system that does X? 
Those are very important questions and, and questions that we engage with every day, but you can't answer those by going and doing an experiment. Or at least you can't answer it just by doing that. You need to sit down and think about it first. And that's what doing philosophy, I, I think, is. Uh, again, it may not be the correct, succinct answer, but I would say it's the investigation of non-empirical questions. And uh, there might be some, when you get into formal logic, there might be some overlap with mathematics there as well, which uh, is an overlap that bothers some people, but I, I don't think it's a huge problem for the definition. There's also but, a lot of overlap with pubs, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. Um, so you've created something. You're making a, a pivot, so to speak, to 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 seeing the, the love of this material you're putting out, seeing your uh, future changing. Um, and deciding that this is going to be something you'd like to really make s- a strong. And you recently dedicated more of your time to it. Every creator that comes onto Patreon has to decide how they're going to pursue their craft. Um, now that we've talked about how you've recently decided to change, pivot a little bit and how you're pursuing it. Um, what goes into a day creating or a month of a program? Like, I mean, do you have long-term goals? Do you have daily goals? Do you have a regimen you follow? Um, I don't have daily goals so much. I sort of fit it in wherever I can. But long term, uh, the goals are to keep it alive. When I go to drama school, which will be in a few months time, I'll be starting another master's degree uh, in acting because I'm going to become an actor, hopefully as a profession. Um, So the long term goal is to keep it alive while I do that. And it would be nice to make 100,000 subscribers by 2017. Is that the next year? Yeah, 2017. By the end of the year, it would be nice to make 100,000 subscribers. I'm on course right now, and maybe I'll just make that. It might fall a little bit short, but at the rate it's growing, that would be nice. Um, those are the long-term goals, really, is just keep doing it as long as I can. Mm. Um, and uh, in terms of what goes into a day, well, script writing obviously takes quite a bit of time, and the research phase for scripts can take anything from weeks to years. I might be calling on things I did at the beginning of my degree and going back to my notes and distilling them into a script. Uh, then in, once I've got a script, uh, I've got to film it and edit it. That usually takes about a day. Then I've got to write the video description, which when you're a YouTuber is a lot more effort than you think. You don't just type in OMG philosophy video. You've got to look at the keywords and what people are searching and do all the boring behind the scenes YouTube stuff, figure out what to title it, create thumbnails, upload it, um, add the subtitles as well, which is quite a laborious process. Uh, it's something I've, I started doing in the last few months as I got quite a few emails from students with hearing impairments who, uh, said we really want to watch your videos or, or maybe not with hearing impairments, but for whom English was a second language, they said we'd really appreciate it. So I, I resolved that in all the new videos that I could, where I had a script, I would, uh, upload the script as a transcript and make it into subtitles, which is, um, which is, yeah, it takes longer than uh, hmm. than you might think, but it's definitely something worth doing and something that I'm committed to doing. Um, so, yeah, it's generally, it can take up to to several hours out of every day. Hmm. Uh, it can do. But then there are ways and means of being clever with it and fitting it in around other things that I hope when I go to drama school I'll be able to uh, to do. Well, uh, similar to Schrodinger's much maligned cat, until people have looked at the metadata, does your video really exist? I think it's worth taking a minute to talk about what goes into those descriptions and how you create something to help it find the audience that will appreciate it. Well, Schrodinger's cat was, a, was of course, a physics experiment. Um, Go well, with the analogy. Not, not an actual on, experiment, Ollie. of course. But I know what you mean. Um, <laughs> well, well, no, the cat's alive. No, he's stuffed. No, he's alive. Oh, keep going. <laughs> There's this great... Um, 
tool that they that they teach you about when you're a YouTuber that's it's literally just um a little bit like uh Graftreon, the thing that you told me about where you can graph people on Patreon. Um where you can just compare two keywords and see what's been searched. So uh you might find that um red is being searched a lot more than orange so if you're doing a video about colors you should probably include the word red more than you should include the word orange in your title for instance or uh, i did a video a while ago about the philosophy of pokemon and uh, a friend of mine who's a pokemon youtuber he said to me oh uh, mewtwo is one of the most searched pokemon well i found that out so you should put mewtwo in the thumbnail obviously you'd put a pokemon in the thumbnail if you're yeah. going to do it it should be mewtwo so there are just sort of boring YouTube ways of figuring out what people are searching for and little tools that they teach you about and that you can use. It's 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 a little bit like witchcraft and it's a little bit boring instead, but it's really important because there are so many people using uh, YouTube that are starting to have no clue. Uh, and mm. it takes a while to develop those skills. I thought it was worth a moment to to completely mm. break uh, entire physics over the coals and then blame philosophy for that. <laughs> but Well, um, I've been quite lucky, I suppose, because I've been to a few... Um, uh, training sessions and I won I won YouTube Next Up which was a, a national competition in the UK that uh, part of winning that included some training so I, I got to see YouTube behind the scenes and they, they teach you a few tricks of the oh, trade so that's been very useful Have you had a chance to work in the YouTube space in London? I have, yeah, yeah, um, a couple of times. When I when I won YouTube Next Up, they they took us down there for a week and put us up, and uh, they let us use all the toys and all the studios and everything. And the philosophy of Pokemon uh, episode I did, I did in collaboration with another YouTuber uh, in YouTube Space London, which was a lot of fun. And um, over the last couple of months, I've been cropping up. Uh, in cameo appearances on various other people's channels, which was all filmed at YouTube Space London. Uh, and that's just now they've just finished editing it. There's a, a vegan YouTuber called Cheap Lazy Vegan who um, had all of us try vegan snacks on her channel and, and I cameoed on that as well, which was good fun. Oh, that's awesome. Mm. Uh, Two-part question. The first one is obvious. Um, as a YouTuber, people that are on Patreon, obviously, are starting a career, perhaps. Maybe they've got a long backlist behind them of work, but... It's still very much a process that's refining, and the tool shed is refining. What are a couple of the simplest but most important tools, or perhaps if people were thinking of buying new tools, the cheapest but most useful tools you'd recommend for someone who wanted to refine the way they were putting their videos together for an ongoing YouTube channel? Um, well, it's it's an old uh, old tip that you won't exclusively get from me, of course, but a, a good microphone. Mm. Um, people generally notice audio quality before they notice video quality. So a good microphone is, is a good investment. It was one of the first investments I made in the channel was, um, yeah, just to make, to make your voice sound a little bit better. And, uh, yeah, that's definitely something worth looking at. If that's the kind of video that you're making, of course, not all videos require good sound quality. Um, there's different ways of doing it, but if for someone like me, a microphone was an important first step into the big leagues. Well, the leagues I'm in anyway. Oh, well, I'm not going to qualify on your leagues. I've just, that's rude and inappropriate, <laughs> but um, beleaguered perhaps because you're very busy. <laughs> um, what's the schedule you're trying to hit to put video content out? And what's the reasoning behind how you release your content? Uh, it's once a week, uh, every Friday. Friday is just because Wednesday used to be the day on which I was most able to film when I was at university. So that <laughs> I, was our day for filming, uh, a day for editing, and then I would upload on a Friday. And it's every week because uh, that's how YouTube alg YouTube's algorithm likes it. Uh, if you upload less frequently than that, it's more difficult to grow the channel. And if you don't upload regularly, it's very difficult to grow the channel as well. So um, when you log into YouTube, there's a little section that says recommended. 
how exactly you get in that is determined by an algorithm that is such a trade secret that none of the people I've met at YouTube know it, and even their higher-ups, they say, don't know it. But one of the things the algorithm takes into account, and you must have the algorithm be your very best friend, is how recently you uploaded. So you really have to have something at least every week if you want to be hitting consistent growth, which is difficult. Um, but yeah, that's that's why I... That's why I upload every week and every week on a Friday. Uh, it would be nice if I could um, anticipate what well, in YouTube language they call it tent polling. So, say the new Star Wars film's coming out in uh, six months' time, you make philosophy of Star Wars and you time it to hit that tent pole, and they call it a tent pole because on graphs of views it forms a tent pole shape. Hmm. Um, I'm I'm rubbish at that. I'm really really terrible at doing that. Uh, but I'm, I'm getting better at it. So we had the, the EU referendum recently and I managed to get, uh, some ideas about a, a video, um, on immigration and the EU and national sovereignty. I managed to chuck that together fairly quickly and did see a spike in that. And, um, I've got one on should Bernie Sanders fans vote for Hillary Clinton, which, you know, every time Bernie and Hillary appear in the news gets, you know, a couple, couple more views coming in, which is nice. Um, so I'm getting better at that, but if you can do that, it's nice, but I, I wouldn't say it's completely essential. Um, I do have one coming out next week, which will be timely for uh, British politics, I think. I'm also That's waiting for the uh, philosophy of vegan snacks to hit your feed, but w there's time. <laughs> yeah, I should go back to um, veganism and vegetarianism one day. It was one of my first ever videos was, should people be vegetarian? And um, going back to the old videos that were rubbish and redoing them and, and not you know verbatim redoing them, but doing them better is something kind of a long-term project that I'd like to do. So long-term, we have a career where we're hoping to become an actor. YouTubing is, of course, a valid component in that, as mm -hmm. Patreon is a valid component compared to using simply the uh, advertising revenue from YouTube. Many mm. streams allow for people to have a little bit more stability when, oh, I don't know, people leave the country because of some silly law that's passed. Um, mm. so uh, what's your future goals when it comes to places to live, when it comes to careers? Do you have, <laughs> do you have a, uh, a, a sweet retirement plan in mind? Do you have a goal in life in mind? Or are you really simply going by the passions right now? You want to act and you'd let, you're enjoying the channel. Uh, I'm not sure those, uh, those two options are entirely inconsistent. So, um, I, that's a perfect I, philosophical answer. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> I've known for a long time that I wanted to be an actor. Um, I did go to university and do a, a standard academic degree first, and I, I think that was a good call. Um, it's very difficult to get into drama school in the UK. I've been very lucky in that I got in the second year I applied. I've met people who have been applying seven, eight, nine, ten years in a row, don't get in. It's more competitive than Oxford and Cambridge. Mm. Um, exceedingly, uh, and an exceedingly difficult life. So I am going to go to drama school and uh, trained to be a professional actor. Um, that means that there is, um, there's no, there's not going to really be any money <laughs> in my future. There's not going to be a retirement plan. There's no pension or anything. And that's something that worried me uh, for a while. And then I spoke to someone about it and they said, well, everything's like that right now. Your entire generation, there are no, there are no jobs for you. You're not going to have pensions. You're going to be working until you're 75 because there there are no jobs like that anymore with job security. So they said to me, you may as well fail at what you love, <laughs> I love rather it. than fail at something you never even wanted to do. And that, that had a twisted twisted kind of logic. So mm. I, I did throw my hat in and um, yeah, I'm going to go to drama school and, and be an actor. That's going to be amazing. That's going to involve moving to London, which uh, I'm desperately trying to find a place to live before my drama school term starts. 
uh, YouTube throughout all that time has been the outlier for me. It's always been the, well, what if I wake up tomorrow and suddenly I'm making millions off that? Mm. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, I'm still... Puny philosophy. Yeah, I'm still not quite making enough to live off from YouTube to live in London off. It's, it's, the Patreon is going really, really well, but, um, you know an awful lot about Patreon, so you probably know as well. It's not something that, that's always 100% reliable. All it takes is for, at my stage, all it takes is for one of your top donors one week, uh, one month to not donate or for their card to be declined. And you can be in trouble if you depend on that income. So at the moment, YouTube is on the edge of being something that could sustain me. And it's been that way for a while. It's kind of, oh, well, what if this becomes the huge thing in my life? And I should keep, I should keep doing it, not only because I love it and, and because I think it's important, but also, um, kind of for my own interest. It's, it's been on the edge of that for me for a long time. So I'm going to pursue acting because it's what I love more than anything else in the world. And uh, a lot of actors do have something on the side that they do as well. They write or they direct. And YouTube, for me, I, I think would be a good thing to do as well as acting. So, so. we are currently uh, fiendishly and quickly, panickedly, we might say, banking a few episodes for those busy rehearsal periods during the absolutely. year? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I can see the episodes I've got right now. I've got five or six uh, <laughs> videos. I'm making as many as I can just to be, uh, just to be a little bit ahead of the curve because – Drama school in Britain is, um, yeah, I went to the open day recently and they said it's 8.30 till 6.30, five days a week, including some Saturdays and every Tuesday night. Mm -hmm. So that is, that's minimum as well. That doesn't include time spent learning lines, time spent creating characters and all the other things that you have to do as an actor. So uh, this one year master's at drama school is going to be a hell of a ride for me. Um, and yeah, we'll see what comes. <laughs> we'll see what the future holds. Oh, I think there's probably room for a philosophy of acting and truth. Absolutely there is. I've been, I've been reading about it and probably work its way into the show at some point. I've got a big, you know, list in my phone of things to do in the medium and long-term future episode ideas. So we'll see. I think it's also a great idea. You know, just do the old uh, Tom, uh, Tom Sawyer paint the whitewash fence. Get your entire class filming and acting in your philosophy videos. Done. It's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. Okay. So uh, we've talked about the traditional tools, which the microphone. First and always, even in video, because your ear will turn out even if the picture is clear. Uh, mm -hmm. We've talked about the changing realities of YouTube and, and having multiple streams of income. Talked about your passion. What I want curious about is what is one of the or two of the untraditional tools that help you around a block, help you create not a phone, not a computer, not a textbook with any staid old person who's probably dead and famous on the front of it. What are some of the things? It could be mountain climbing. It could be walking a dog. It could be playing with marbles that, that help you through blocks and help you put the connections you need to create. Oh, I see what you mean. Um, well, I do have some very supportive friends and a very supportive family, which is very helpful. Um, those are advantages that not everyone has. Uh, not all YouTubers and not all human beings have that. So that is mm. incredibly helpful. Um, I'm also fortunate in that um, my family is able to support me in this interim period between graduating from university and going to a very, very different kind of uh, learning institution in drama school. So that helps. Um, I don't know. I like my exercise. Uh, I like reading. I do like reading philosophy. So it's not something that, that really drains me in a big way. Um, yeah. I'm, do what I do you like love. That. 
do you like my video games? Um, oh. mainly, I tend to be very, very behind on video games. I'm like Captain America in that I'm years <laughs> out of date. So I, I, as an example of how out of date I am, I just finished Arkham City a few days ago. Oh, Loved man. it. And, and that was good fun. But that's, you know, that's ancient gaming history. Um, was that 8-bit resolution? I forget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's on the Game Boy, I think. Old-fashioned Game Boy with big four batteries. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I have fun with that. And, mm. uh, and also... Since I do acting as well, there's a lot of theatre and character work and play reading to go with it. That's also, you know, a change is as good as a rest, as they say. So change having those two good. streams and I can flip back and forth when one gets a bit much is uh, is nice as well. What's your uh, theory of improv? I imagine it's something that's very, as a stand-up comedian, moving on your feet, thinking on your feet, incorporating scenes. Um, do you find that it's more uh, more beneficial to your brain to simply roll with what's on it or to stick with the script? When it comes to getting through your videos and your 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 YouTube lectures, so to speak. Well, the full episodes of Philosophy Tube, the full length episodes, are scripted, um, and I I very rarely deviate from the script because the more I deviate, the more of a pain in the ass it is to write the subtitles. <laughs> the more the subtitles have to be corrected. But I love um, it. You've got a little. Uh, uh, they were philosophers too. You've got a very Monty Python esque the, the the wildlife music, the plays in the background behind your subtitle screens. You really do a good job on that. Really? Oh, thank you. That's yeah. very kind of you. Um, yeah, the music is something that I that I'm. It's going through a bit of a transition period at the moment because one of the things about winning YouTube Next Up was I got a free subscription to a service that provides royalty free music. So, for years, I've had to sort of scrape by on on the odds and ends of uh, royalty free music that I could um, scrounge up from the internet. But now I've got libraries and libraries of the stuff. So finding exactly the mood I want to set with my uh, background music, whether I want to go more BBC documentary or whether I want to go have some chiptune stuff and be a bit more PBS Idea Channel is, is something I'm playing around with and having fun with. Um, yeah, that's fun. It's interesting the way the technology, and we talked about how the sound is so clear in people's minds, but being able to play with uh, different kinds of fonts on the screen, different kinds of camera resolutions, mm -hmm. having a second camera, it really changes the experience. Do you have any fear or any 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 desire to keep it pure and simple for the for your uses, or are are there some kind of next steps you'd like to bring to the channel? Um, technologically, I'm not sure there are any next steps I, I want to do right now. Something I did want to do was have a new background, and uh, winning YouTube Next Up and getting some of the equipment I got from that did help me with that and and better lighting and so on. So I'm at a stage now where it's I'm fairly comfortable with it. If I were to add second cameras and so on, it would it would start to become more unwieldy and a a morning of filming would start to become a day of filming and that's not really an option for me. All right, so you've um, got a minimalist philosophical output. Yeah, yeah. Well, just because, um, keep it simple, I suppose, the, the simpler it is to film, the quicker I can do it. Um, and, uh, to focus on the, on the content really and making sure that the scripts are good. I, I always like to start from a solid script. And if I don't have a script that I'm happy with, I don't film. But, um, going back around to the, uh, to the improv thing, um, I do have some, episodes uh, a different series i do called the overanalyzing vlogs which i don't script i just i have some bullet point ideas that i want to talk about and then i just get in front of a camera and i ramble um so i i do sometimes have ones where they're not it's not a lecture it's just a sort of hey you ever thought about this this is what i think about this but uh, leave me some comments i don't know man and then sometimes people might come up with something in the comments they might come up with a really good idea or a really good person who's written about it and then i'll go oh cool i'll just use that and i'll write a script and do a full episode on it so I enjoy yeah. your comments. You actually do a lot of interaction with people. You you read comments yeah. on the air. Well, that was very important from the start. Yeah. Have you got any memorable interactions on Patreon, or do you find most of it still comes through the actual comments you get that you're incorporating in the videos? 
Uh, the vast majority of it comes through YouTube and uh, and the fan mail. I have a, an email address that the the fan mail comes into, and Twitter is where I get a lot of fan interaction, um, much more so than Patreon. Occasionally, I'll get a very very lovely um, fan message on Patreon, but it's 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 much much rarer. You know, it's happened one or two times. Whereas the the email address and the Twitter and the YouTube comments is where the vast vast majority, like ninety nine point five percent of the fan interaction comes. Do you have any other patron creators that you like to support, either with your dollars or sorry pounds, or with your time, or with a shout out now? Uh, yeah, there are a couple. Um, there's uh, John, the Litcrit guy, who um, is kind of he kind of does something similar to me, but for um, critical theory, and he does it on Twitter rather than on YouTube. Um, the Litcrit guy, I support him. He's he's a friend of mine as well, so I give him two dollars every month, and he gives me two dollars every month, and we just have a bit of solidarity there. Um, there's a creator I like called Marina Shut Up, who is like me, but for feminism and gender theory. Um, she's kind of been cooling off recently. She hasn't made as many videos, but um, yeah, I. I was being into her channel for a while. That was well worth supporting. And um, the, the other creator I support is uh, Birdkeeper Toby, the Pokemon guy, just because huh. he's a friend and, and he's he's a really good guy and really puts his heart and soul into everything he makes. I, I love the fact that you've taken something so deep and so despairing, but every episode is fun. There is humor. There's tie around to modern culture and there's points where you intersect with everyday lives and then you tie in the big issues mm. and now that you've got that doing and you've got some people on patreon i just want to remind the people listening to this that they could cut me out of the equation altogether and go right to philosophy tube on patreon <laughs> if you're interested in the roots or the current fringes of philosophy or the current fringes of what's going on in ollie's brain uh, you can help him make the next philosophy tube video that you're going to love at patreon.com slash philosophy tube mm. ollie That's thank very you very much for your time on the patreon podcast Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for, for having me. Thank you.